Okay, so our first panel here on um, meeting New York's energy needs under the CLCPA, how do we deliver what's needed, and how soon can we get there? We have three panelists. We have, uh, working my way down from the end there, we have Ken Polkowski from the uh, Business Council of New York, Gavin Donahue from the Independent Power Producers of New York, and Don Shabazzpour from National Grid. And we're going to kind of go in reverse order here. Give them each five minutes to give some introductory remarks. I'll ask them a few questions, and then uh, we'll allow audience questions. And if you guys uh, don't have enough questions, I always have plenty in reserve. So, uh, Ken, go ahead and start us, please. All right. Let's get our mic working. Good morning, everybody. Um, thanks for the invite to be here. Uh, as you might imagine, this issue is taking up a lot of our time, uh, business, I'm the Vice President of Government Affairs for the Business Council. Uh, we're a state statewide uh, employer association representing about 3,500 companies uh, across the state in all sectors of all sizes. And I, on the one hand, no doubt this is the most significant piece of public policy uh, ever put into place in New York State. Uh, and I will say, I, I do a, I've done a lot of these presentations and the pace has been increasing. Uh, I think it's fair to say that the vast majority of business leaders and business owners in the state are really unaware of the details. They, they know the bill passed, they know what the targets are, but they certainly haven't had time to look at the scoping plan. Um, and if you're, you know, pick your sector, if you're a manufacturer, if you're a, uh, even you know a, a service company, you're going to be impacted by almost every part of this. You're operating a building. You're you're a consumer of electric power and natural gas. You, your customers, your employees uh, move back and forth. You need goods and services delivered. Every part of this, and ultimately, uh, you're going to help pay for it. Uh, so there's a lot to cover here for an organization like this. And I was speaking to a, an association of small manufacturers last week. And I, I, it occurred to me that when I'm talking about this, it's almost like the, you know, to, to a group that is generally aware about environmental policy, but not, you know, detailed understanding of, of the scoping plan. It's almost like the five stages of grief, uh, denial, anger, bargaining, depression, acceptance. And certainly when I sit in a room of 40 40 owners of small manufacturing uh, companies, when I lay out the full scope, not the full scope, but the, the highlights of the scoping plan, what it, what's in there for industrial sources, what's in there for transportation, for buildings, the, the, the transition of the natural gas and electric, the first thing you get is denial. That's, they throw up their hands, this is impossible. And then they immediately move to significant concern of how this is gonna affect the future financial viability uh, of those uh, businesses. And to me, uh, at the Business Council, my challenge is first educating. But we're also have to, as a business community, have to move to the point where you get to, uh, well, I guess phase three bargaining. How do we make this work? What's workable? What needs to be done first? Where can we achieve you know, short-term, affordable, workable, non-disruptive, uh, reductions in, in, um, in, in greenhouse gas emissions. And what needs to be, what's the longer term plan? Because I think it's almost impossible to write a plan today that tells you what you're gonna be doing 25 years from now. Um, so when we've presented to the, our initial comments to the, the Climate Action Council, a couple of things that we think the state needs to do to, to make this more acceptable and workable and give uh, the business community um, 
uh, an understandable path forward that they can buy into. One, I think that there's a desperate need for the state to be more upfront uh, and more complete in their discussion of what this is going to cost. And I don't just mean what it's going to cost in between now and 2050. We have a good idea of what the deployment of wind, solar, uh, storage, transmission will be in the next 10 years. Translate that into impacts on a kilowatt hour basis for industrial, commercial, and residential customers. Only when you have something like that can you start talking about what the state needs in terms of impact mitigation uh, and incentives to move forward. Um, second, all fuels, all technology needs to be considered, needs to be left on the table, especially this early on in the implementation process. Uh, we talked to a lot of businesses who see a, a really uh, promising future in green hydrogen and other technologies. At the same time, there's a, a lot of voices in this conversation who want to take technologies like that off the table today. Uh, we think that's a mistake. Um, all things need to be considered. Uh, three, as I said, we need to look at, and, and I know there's a, in talking to, to folks about what happens after the final scoping plan is adopted. Who does what and at what, what timetable? I think there's a lot of uncertainty as to what the actual flow of, of mandates, requirements, incentives will be. And as I said, I think we need to really triage uh, all the measures in the scoping plan and say, here are the ones that we should be focusing on. We should be incentivizing, for example, upgrades in efficiency, because I think everyone will tell you that's the most cost-effective um, step. We need to look at emergent but not yet fully mainstream technologies and focus financial and technical assistance on those. There will be some things, you know, impossible under, with current technology to, uh, to electrify some industrial process. Let's leave those for the future and let, and let, um, and let, uh, let time come much. And just one last comment. We really need to be very mindful, and the statute tells, a, tells the state it has to do this, very mindful of adopting measures that result in, in emissions and economic leakage from the state. Uh, we know that's a real phenomenon. That's our number one concern. You may be able to, to lay out a scenario where these, these uh, targets by 2050 and 2040 are achievable. I think the transition is where the real risk is. How do we move from here to there? What are the upfront costs that are gonna be incurred that most other states are not imposing on the business community? And how do we ensure that those are, are not uh, having a significant negative impact on the state? And along with it, zero or negative impact on global emissions because the export uh, leakage of emissions to other less uh, carbon, uh, carbon efficient uh, jurisdictions as New York State serves no purpose at all. So that there's, you know, in the, in the hearings, we had two minutes, now we have five minutes. There's so much to cover here, but those are some of the highlights for us. And again, thanks for the invite. Thanks. Uh, good morning, everybody. I I'm Gavin Dunahue. I'm uh, on the council. Uh, I was one of the first members, I think I was the first member appointed to the council by um, the Senate. Um, it's great to see Senator Jordan here, Assemblyman Pomisano in the Assembly, who's been very engaged in all these issues. Commissioner Howard, Commissioner Berman, it's great that you've taken the time to be here today. Um, I don't want to be redundant. I want to just talk globally. I'm going to try to answer as many questions as I can. Um, but a little bit about myself <clears throat> before I get into the presentation. Um, IPNI and I, we, we believe in this clean transition. We believe that transitioning to a clean energy future is important. Um, I go all the way back to the days of Commissioner Jorling at DEC. I was an intern uh, when I was in graduate school at DEC. 
I was executive deputy commissioner under Governor Pataki at DEC. I had a lot of environmental policies I worked on. So there is a rich legacy I have personally on this. But that doesn't mean we just rush and jump into the deep end of the swimming pool and not know how deep the water is. And that's where I'm troubled as a council member as to where we're going as the pace of play is really unreasonable. A um, little bit about IPNI, I represent generators. I represent renewable energy. The chairman of my board is Brookfield Renewable. We represent solar farms. We represent fossil development. Uh, we represent everybody that generates electricity. I represent over three quarters of all the electricity generated in the state on a daily basis. The thing that I want to leave this, this audience with is we employ over 15,000 people across the state and pay somewhere in the neighborhood of $1.7 billion in property taxes. So we are a huge economic force across the state. Um, the scoping plan, <clears throat> James, first of all, I appreciate all the work that you've had at the Empire uh, Center and the work you've put, put out publicly because more of it needs to be done, but it's been very helpful, James. Um, the plan itself is 300 pages and a 300-page appendices. Uh, there's a lot to talk about here. I'm going to try not to be redundant. But what's in the plan to me um, that is that is really important for you to know, no new natural gas in New York State by 2027 to existing buildings, prohibits propane, uh, natural gas and oil in new homes by 2024. That means approximately one to two million homes will need to be electrified with heat pumps. There's a number that I think is good for folks that are not in the business, one megawatt, because James threw out thousands of megawatt numbers this morning, is equivalent to 1,000 homes. So that's how big of a number we're talking about. One megawatt does 1,000 homes. Uh, no traditional heating systems in homes by 2030, ban of natural gas and, and appliances in 2035, and approximately 3 million zero emission vehicles will need to be sold by 2030. Those are recommendations in the plan. Um, there is a, a, some positives in the plan. There is a recognition that it's important to keep our zero emission technologies on the nuclear front around, and also the existing renewables that we have in the state. We need to figure out a way to keep their business here in the state of New York. That's important. And then they also have talked about something we didn't talk about today, to pay for this uh, through carbon pricing at some mechanism on a price on carbon, which is something we very much support uh, here at IPNI to put a price out there to, to build what needs to be built. Um, gaps in the plan, real quickly on the gaps. There is no way to pay for any of this in the plan. There is no funding mechanism. The legislature passed this bill with no funding. So that is a huge issue that the public needs to understand. Um, and to build upon what Ken said, the legislation is incredibly limiting. It legislates wind, solar, and storage. If we're not going to have natural gas, what is that zero emission, dispatchable technology, innovative private sector investment are we going to have to keep the lights on? Because it builds upon what James said uh, in his comments about reliability. Reliability is really not given enough, cre enough credit and, and not enough input from the ISO in this process or the PSC in my judgment. Um, they're the, the experts, they're the ones that are tasked under the law to determine what that zero emission technology is. Is it green hydrogen? Is it renewable natural gas? Is it carbon capture? What is it? We cannot move forward and give up on natural gas without an alternative fuel that is available and affordable. So that's one of the problems with the, um, the law. Um, the other thing is the renewable energy in New York State, New York City is only has 3% renewable energy. Um, we are very much dependent in New York City on fossil fuels to run the power system and keep the lights on. We are oil and gas in New York City. 
So when you hear that we can do all these things, I'm not saying we can't do these, but we need to be realistic about what the numbers are, because the numbers matter and, and there's truth behind those numbers. Electrifying everything is gonna require a four to five time build out of the electricity system. Incredible amount of build out. It is going to cause us to need more electricity, not less. We didn't even talk today about transmission and distribution. We have to, and I know that we'll get into that in a minute, but we have to build out the grid smartly. Um, consumer costs. There's a cost tag given to this to retrofit homes in upstate New York. I'm not gonna even talk about New York City, but upstate New York, twenty-five dollars to $50,000 to retrofit your home to comply with the statute. And that doesn't even deal with unforeseen costs that folks uh, have out there. Um, 25% of existing residents will require an updated electric service to accommodate the whole electrification of your cars and your heating system. Um, I did mention carbon pricing. I just wanna conclude and, and be here to answer questions. Where I'm at and where my members are, we support innovation, reliability, emission reductions, and affordability. Those are the four pillars. But what we want is a balanced regulatory environment general partnership with utilities to accomplish this um, smart infrastructure and projects that are actually going to keep the lights on and be affordable for New Yorkers. So that's what's driving my advocacy on the, on the council and happy to try to answer any questions folks have. Thanks. Great. Hi, good morning everyone. Thank you for being here. My name is Don Shabaspur. I'm a director of our policy and regulatory strategy. I work out of our Brooklyn office focusing on the future of heat. Um, let me just start out by saying we support the end state of CLCPA in terms of emission reductions, but we think there's a better way to get there. So let me just unpack that a bit. Exactly two weeks ago, we released our fossil-free vision plan. It has three fundamental pillars. The first one is energy efficiency. The second one is widespread adoption of what we call hybrid electric and gas heating systems, which means the heating system that works both on gas and electric, geothermal, and targeted electrification. The third pillar is delivering a fossil-free gas network. And let me just unpack that a bit. Um, and then Gavin mentioned, in the same way that we have decarbonized the electricity network, we can do the same thing with the gas network. So make a distinction between natural gas and the gas network, and we will displace geological gas or natural gas over time with renewable natural gas and green hydrogen. Renewable natural gas is basically methane that comes from existing um, organic feedstocks, so your existing waste streams, livestock manure, food waste, wastewater treatment plants, and landfill. In addition, green hydrogen, which means using renewable electricity to produce hydrogen through a process known as electrolysis. And again, these are, think of them as the same as solar and wind, but on the, elect on the gas side, we will decarbonize the gas network over time. Just very quickly, um, the reason that we have put out this plan um, is that we think, and to unpack my earlier statement that we think there's a better way, we can get to the same end state in a more cost-effective, pragmatic, reliable, with a higher probability of success. So let me quickly hit some, on some of those. In terms of cost-effective, you know, Gavin, you just mentioned that you need to have a significant build-out of the um, electric system, so we have quantified that at least in New York, and, and New York and New England as well. That number translates to about 60 gigawatts, so we avoid our plan avoids the build-out of about 60 gigawatts in New York. That translates to about $70 billion of capital investments, which then translates to $1,000 per year for heating customers and the average New Yorker. To give you a sense of that over build-out, 
And this is, I think, if you remember one comment from my remarks is that today the gas network delivers three to four times more energy on its peak day than the electric system delivers on its peak day. So you, if you begin to shift heating from electricity to natural gas, you may need to exactly what you just mentioned to quadruple, triple or quadruple the uh, uh, electric system. And, and uh, you know, our plan, I, I do want to indicate that it has a lot of electrification as well, but it's more balanced. And in terms of, you know, pragmatism and reliability, it comes to, we are, you know, our plan, we are decarbonizing both networks at the same time, which means that you're not relying on the electric network because under CLCPA, there's primary, primarily one lever. It is moving towards that electrification of everything, which gives you more reliability, right? The gas network is about 100 times more reliable than the electricity network. So it's a combination of those things that over time gives you also a higher probability of success. So that's really our plan in a nutshell, and I look forward to answering a lot of questions and your discussions. All right. Thank you very much. So my first question is for uh, everybody in the panel. Um, what is your perspective? Not Everybody sounds generally supportive of the overall goals of the Climate Act, uh, but what is your perspective on the specific target dates, such as 70% renewable electricity by 2030 and 100% emissions-free uh, energy system by 2040? Can we, act, can we achieve that? Anybody can answer. Um, I mean, our view is the, the nearer the target, the less likely. Um, and the question is at what, what direct cost and what indirect cost. Um, and that's why, you know, we, we um, you know, are on a, as I said, a two-track two uh, approach to this. One is to point out the concerns we have with, with the plan, but also to, to highlight what we see as, as doable uh, and affordable in, in the in the relatively short term. When I say short term, I say, I mean between now uh, and 2030. Um, I think there's a handful of major issues in the bill that uh, this is going to be easier said than done, but need to be need to be addressed. Um, I just think we're strict adherence uh, to the the statute as it was written. Um, I, I don't think it's necessary, and I don't think it's uh, I think there's going to be need some adjustments. So I think it's going to be a real challenge, and I think it's the wrong, I think it's the wrong measuring stick, quite frankly, just to meet the, the, you know, the exclusive uh, goal of meeting the targets. I think we can make real progress. The other thing, and um, I didn't have a chance to say in my opening remarks, I think this policy, many people in this policy debate forget or didn't even know where New York State started with. I believe we were... 60% uh, non-emitting power generation when this bill was passed. And since then, we've actually gone backward with the elimination of Indian Point. But we're way ahead of you know, 40 to 45 states. And I think that really begs the question, uh, is adherence to that you know, ultimately artificial statutory target, uh, you know, strict adherence to that, uh, is that, you know, that crucial to our path forward? in improving the state's carbon efficiency? I, I, to me, the answer is no. Um, very similar position of Ken, but with some different angles. Um, what is really wrong with the, with the bill, and I talked about it earlier, is there is no money to pay for it. The legislature continues to pass these onerous mandates on the public 
and does not provide funding. So unless you have funding, I don't know how you can attain these goals, even though they're in statute, because we don't have any way to pay for them. So that's one issue. Two, we have, as everybody knows in this room, a very bureaucratic regulatory environment. It takes forever to build anything in this state. And I don't care if it's renewable or natural gas, the regulatory structure and permitting structure is incredibly complex. And we're also a home rule state. So local input and community impacts are really important to policymakers and their voices need to be heard. So those are very much challenges that we have to deal with. What I would say is that um, there's a number of projects. Over at the ISO, there's an interconnection queue for those of you that are not familiar with it. There's 60,000 megawatts of projects that are sitting in the queue that wanna do business in New York that have to get through a study process to make it happen. But we have to have the money to make it happen. So um, there is no shortage of private companies that wanna invest here in New York. Um, and I think that's a great thing and a great sign. Uh, but I think the law does need to be changed. I think we need to be more realistic about it. Um, one of the things I didn't have a chance to talk about, and it's sort of a pickup on what Ken said, um, we've reduced carbon in this state 60% in the last 20 years. We have no coal in this state, for those of you who don't know that. We have also reduced nitrogen oxide by 90% and SO2 emissions by 90%. We don't get enough recognition for what we've done in New York. We have an incredibly resilient electricity grid. The lights are on every day. We very have limited problems. And we have made huge drives on the environmental front that I'm really proud of my members and being part of that advocacy uh, part of it. So I think it's gonna be very much a, a big challenge to meet the targets under the law. All right. Well, we appear to be in violent agreement. I'm just gonna build on what you, you said. Um, just give you some more facts and data. So again, starting out, you know, end state optimistic, you know, we'll, we'll get there. Um, but to get you a sense just where we are, right? Um, the state of New York wants nine gigawatts by 2035. Today, there are seven offshore wind turbines operational in the entire Northeast. So from Maine to Florida, there's seven. The largest offshore wind turbine that you could build is about 10 megawatts. So that means New York needs 900, right, by 2035. New Jersey has seven, target of seven, so that's another 700. And Northeast overall is supposed to get to 40 gigawatts by 2040 and 2050s. Just to give you a sense of the ambition the CLCPA has a 92% electrification of heat rate. In New York City, that translates to about 675 conversions every week between now and 2050. So to achieve that number, you would need that amount of conversions. So I think of, you know, the ambition is 675, but reality is zero, right? There are no conversions happening today in New York City. So no one, in other words, is calling, you know, Grid or National or Con Edison saying, you know, I want to remove my gas heating and go to electric. And again, you know, not to be repetitive to exactly what Ken and Gavin were just saying, I just want to provide some more facts in terms of the ambition and the scale of that ambition. And you know, I think what's probably more realistic from a pragmatic way is probably the light duty vehicle, the electrification of the transportation sector. In principle, you can see how you get there. But again, if you look at the CLCPA, it's a hockey stick. So it's a hockey stick, meaning in terms of adoption, of electrification for transportation. That's probably the, if I had to bet, you know, that's probably one that you could probably achieve in the near term goals, as you said, but the other ones, and again, Gavin, as you alluded to, become really, really challenging, at least in the next 10 years.